Hi, welcome to Cinemad. Today's podcast is an old cassette tape that I pulled out of a box. It features two avant-garde film legends. Uh, first, Stan Brackage, which you could pretty much call the godfather of avant-garde film. And the great filmmaker Godfrey Reggio, whose series of films, starting with Koyanis Katsi and Pawakwatsi, are really great and legendary. Uh, it, this was taken at the 1999 Telluride Film Festival. Uh, I was a projectionist there. It was a, my first year at the festival. And I had just finished uh, Cinemad Number 1 as a printed film zine. And I was getting things ready for Cinemad Number 2 at the time. And there was this screening at the festival that was just pure avant orgasm. Uh, it was three brand new Stan Brackett shorts as part of his hand-painted Persian series of films. And that preceded a documentary that Chris Marker had made about Andre Tarkovsky. So, deep art world. Chris Marker was not a big public person and wasn't there, but Stan Brackage was for an intro and a Q&A, and a frequent visitor to Telluride Film Festival. Of course, he lived and worked in Boulder, so not too far away. Um, but he also had like a warm reception and a good crowd at the festival every year. And Reggio actually comes to the festival, did come to the festival quite a bit to help out with a student program and short films there. And this year there was also a Philip Glass uh, sort of retrospective, and they showed a lot of Godfrey's work for that too. So after the screening, I had asked Stan if I could. Uh, do an interview for Cinemad, and he said, sure, but he was about to talk to a group of high school kids that were attending the festival as part of a school program, and Godfrey was also talking to the kids, and it was the first time they had ever met. They had known of each other, but they had not met yet, and so they said I could sit in and, and record the interview. A lot of the questions came from the students and from the teacher that was there, uh, and it makes an interesting starter for both of their works because the kids had seen that program and they had been at the festival, but they really weren't familiar with either filmmaker. So there's actually some nice um, questions and answers about their work and what they think about film. And of course, it's like everything that's old. It's fascinating to look back, um, but it's also very interesting when they talk about the concerns of the film world at the time. And what we have going today, almost 20 years later, things didn't exactly get easier or better. But uh, but it's great. They're, they're both very poetic and say a lot of really easily quotable things. It's being obsessed with film and making films about the beauty of the beast. Sorry for the quality. This was for print, so I never thought anybody would actually listen to the cassette tape. However, if you're a static addict, this will sound beautiful. My voice isn't on it. Uh, the questions are coming from the students and the teachers that were there. Reggio has a little bit lower voice, and Stan has a higher pitch voice, and he talks first. Well, I make a wide variety of films of which you've seen the hand-painted films. Uh, three of the hand-painted films. I mean, of the Persians, for example, you saw I think Persian 8 today, right? There's 12 of them all together now. And uh, I think the series maybe closes out at that point. But that comes from a lifetime involvement with Persian art, with Farsi, with the very with calligraphic ways in which these peoples have expressed themselves. Uh, um, and um, Suddenly that kind of boils over, and I begin wanting to sing in relation, you know, with my drawing on film in relationship to all that's been given to me. Mostly it's I have a surfeit of giving, of things I've experienced that it would be overwhelming if I can't find a way to reciprocate. So my inspiration comes usually from that sense, although also there are other more normally, what you'd more normally call a crisis, uh, that where I can't, really can't move unless I can express myself in relationship to some events in the world. I also photograph, uh, and I work in a wide variety of things from something fairly close to standard documentary, uh, clear through to, to I wouldn't know what to call it, you know. Uh, 
uh, drama also. I've worked with drama. I've worked commercially with drama and uh, television ads and things like that when I was younger. So, I, and I have a very wide, I'm open to any kind of possibility. And, uh, well, any kind that's real to my needs or what I feel I might be able to do something with. Um, so there's no easy answer to that question. Every film has kind of different thing that causes it to spring into being. I mean, Mine is not perhaps as clear. I, I must say that Stan is, um, you know, he has an, an enormous breadth of, of knowledge about what's uh, in cinema, in image, in art. Um, he's not only a, a practitioner, he's also a, uh, an extremely knowledgeable person. For myself, I've come in a completely different direction. Um, I was a monk for 14 years. I worked with street gangs for another 14 years. Um, was a political activist. Um, I think I happened into film because of what motivated me was this uh, intensity of trying to understand the, the world in which I lived in. And after working with street gangs for so long, I felt that um, that these gangs were fine. It was the world they lived in that was upside down. So I wanted an opportunity, much like a person who, say, is an indigenous person, uh, their life depends on understanding the world they live in. The, if you live in the desert, you must understand the earth. You, you're on the sky, the water, the light. Um, I feel that uh, we live in a world that uh, we're almost incapable of seeing and uh, because it's so close to us. This world to me is a prison. Um, I'm sorry to say that, but you asked for my motivation. Um, I don't see it. I see the, the earth as a very beautiful place, terrible in its beauty, but um, I see the synthetic world we live in as a prison that we're all rushing to get inside of. And it, uh, I can't for the life of me understand it. So this is the motivation for the work that I do, trying to understand this insane world that we live in. Now, not that I'll ever understand it. You know, the, um, the movies I make, uh, just a few, Stan has made, I don't know, hundreds of movies I would think that way, Stan. Probably 300 something. There you go, I've but made some of them, you know, movies. from nine seconds long to four and a half hours. Okay. But I'm obsessed, and I wouldn't recommend that as a life. <laughs> but yeah, I just have no choice. I mean, say, I, I, I find I agree very much with your fiction of the world and your sense of it, and also I could share, and do share, those same uh, sentiments. I I grew up in slums, and I lived later in slums since I was a struggling young filmmaker. I, I got my meals eating people's thrown down finishes on 14th Street. Right. where I got all my cigarettes too. People would buy a condition, have a smoke, and then they'd hear their train coming, they'd throw it down. All that I break, the only thing I had left was I would like break off the bit part before I'd eat, but I knew soon I'd be eating, just picking them up and eating. So I had, but I, I can kind of look in awe at yourself dealing with that world. I, I found myself incapable of many levels of living within it and dealing with it. I'm also incapable of living in the mountains. A lot of people think if you retreat to the mountains, you know, and get up in the hills, you'll be... I found the worst, meanest neighbors imaginable. They, they, they went out and practiced with bazookas and army surplus stuff waiting to kill people. I mean, that's that was their big dream. And, and, I, and here I'm surrounded by all this terrible beauty and here are the humans that are attracted to live there. So uh, now I live down in Boulder, and I don't know whatever anyone could make of Boulder, but it's the closest I can get to Winfield, Kansas, where I was happy as a child, and, and you know, where people say good morning to each other, and the dogs nod at you rather than bark at you. And I have a little two-bedroom apartment, and I'm raising another family, you know, two boys. So I can be in awe that he has 
and you, 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 you made, I don't know your films, I'm sad to say, but you, you made films in the slums, right? No. Well, it depends on what you mean by the slums. Um, I, I make, I've made films about the beauty of the beast. Uh, those things that um, America is known all over the world as the uh, materialistic uh, capital of the universe, as it were. Everyone wants to come here because of the so-called freedoms that we have, but maybe for the perception of the commodities and the way of life that we live, I've made films about um, that kind of world. Uh, those things that not the obvious deprivation of war and hunger and poverty because it, it, it would you know would take someone not alive to see uh, to not see the you know the suffering and the terribleness of that and plenty of people make documentaries about injustice so what I've tried to do is is look at those things that we consider our glory our uh, accomplishment uh, the big cities our technology uh, our um, our, our culture and uh, tried to raise questions in my films that only my audience can answer. Um, I believe it's inappropriate to give answers uh, in mediums as powerful as film because we don't even understand what the image does to us, much less uh, try to use it in a way to convince someone else of your point of view. I think the power of cinema is that it can uh, open within the viewer, much like a tarot card, if you want to use an example, it can open within your own mind your own answers to things. I mean, when I look at Stan's work this morning, I've seen a lot of his work, uh, I never ask myself, what does this mean? Um, I more look at it like music, is it meaningful? And uh, for me, it's very meaningful. What does it mean? Who knows? I'm never going to get in his mind. So I don't know what he means, but his his work, like art, is a um, it produces a meaningful response in my life, like a much like a uh, a piece of music. We we are very related because uh, yes, music is the main thing, and music is what uh, I think it was Walter Pater said: all arts aspire to music in some sense because music touches, goes right down to the nerves, to the very bone of people. And, makes them dance or march into the hell of war or whatever the music can cause. But for me, uh, this whole area of painting on film, which would seem probably, we would say, very different from what you're doing, but it isn't really in the long run because what I'm trying to do is, is reveal to people or inspire people to be aware of their moving visual thinking. Uh, and, and I feel this is the new way to think, uh, not to discard the old ways, but this is another way to think that can be added to symbols, numbers, words, uh, pictures in the normal sense. We could add uh, the streaming of our, of our emotional consciousnesses and how it's affected by simple forms like Persian motifs or, mm -hmm. or naked bodies. And, and this is an area of growth because I'm hoping, dreaming to grow out of this horrible materialism. I mean, I don't, I don't want you to think for a moment I'm ivory tower. I, I can say, and I have said for many years, I tried very hard to get over into Canada because as an American patriot, I feel it's a shame and a disgrace if I can't die in exile. It's a lie. I mean, I am... All my contemporaries are dead or worse, except for six or seven, out of 75 to 150. And they weren't taken out and shot like happens in Russia or sent and starved somewhere. They were killed in the American way. The independent film movement, which has affected the whole world of film and has changed Hollywood movies forever, and any decent Hollywood director will tell you that, um, has been totally ignored by the public broadcasting system, almost the entire educational system, and uh, and all of the and almost all the museums. I think there's maybe four museums that deal with it at all in any regular way. And I tell you what they are: they're they're uh, a museum of modern art. They're um, the Whitney's getting started, but I can't count them yet. We have to wait and see. The Walker Art Museum, 
the uh, the uh, God can I get bored even the uh, my Berkeley has done something with some continuity and regularity specific film archives I mean and and the Millennium Film Workshop in New York City and that's it those are the four venues when I finish a film anthology film well anthology yeah they do but but they're classics well then you go to anthology you'd think I hadn't made a film for 20 years you know uh, I mean, I don't mean that just as a reproach. They have their hands full dealing with the classics. Right. But also, anthology, for lack of money, is forced more and more to right. act as a venue for uh, offbeat Hollywood movies, including striptease artists that come in and, and do a dance to tease the, the, the rich people slumming so that they'll give a donation and all kinds of hanky-panky and tricks like that. So that's the American independent film movement. And Telluride, which always has for a year to yeah. put on two or three little things. Yeah. Um, you said uh, the tower, is that people falling? The Dark Tower, the name of my film? Yeah, the one we saw that. Um, the Dark Tower is a, a phrase in prose and poetry that's very old in the West, and probably something comparable to it in any country in the world. The Dark Tower, um, how can I say, it's in many different poems, epic poems that go back to the Middle Ages. Um, the concept, the child rolling to the Dark Tower came, might be a poem you might want to look up. It usually means, uh, among all the things we've done, we come finally to the Dark Tower, which it's more than death. You can't just say death. As, as any good symbol, it means multiple things. The Dark Tower can be the final act of, of meditation. It could be the site of evil. It, it, Mordor is a dark tower in Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings. I have this rising in my mind as I get older again and again, the tower in my closed eye vision, in my moving visual thinking, a tower. And I often thought to myself, like, God, this is so literal. You know, I'm walking toward the tower. <laughs> of death and, and, and despair. And uh, so to, in order to meditate on it more deeply, I paint it and get it out there. I paint it in relationship to the world in which it arises, that is, moving visual thinking. Yeah, you understand, every, every kid rubs his or her eyes to make the, the multiple uh, feedback. Here's the object, it's called. And that's my starting point for painting. Hmm. I have a, a question. Um, what are you painting on, and um, how is it on cells or is it on canvas? And, and then, how many frames does it take to illustrate like one of your films? This is a very good question. But uh, do, do you have your hand up? You want to add something? No. no. Okay. Uh, I paint on 16-millimeter film because that's all I can afford. I have a couple times, due to help grants of some sort, been enabled to do a few 35-millimeter films. But most of it's painted for, if not on 16-millimeter, for reduction to 16-millimeter, which would be the only venue, the only outlet for such a thing, for the most part. And uh, so every frame is about the size of that fingernail. So that's really tiny. Yeah, that's like getting close to Persian miniatures. Right? Japanese painting on grains of rice. Right. <laughs> Lord's Prayer on the head of a pin or whatever. Um, it started many, many years ago. It started when I was uh, 19, 20, doing Dog Star Man. I wanted to include every kind of vision, and having no way to get a camera into the brain, I painted. And so that's where the painting began. But it also extended into 8 millimeter when I could not afford 16. So then you're, you're painting small. on a, a thing smaller than your little fingernail. Um, but 
it somehow keeps arising. Most of my work still is probably photography, but this kept arising. It kept arising in my work in photographic films, sometimes a film just painting. Finally, it's become the main thing that I do. Now, what I paint with, and a very important thing to warn other people that do so, two things. One is you have to paint in such a way that it will stay, that it will adhere and stay stuck to the film you're painting on. And I paint mostly on clear leader. That is not the leader at the front end and back end of a film, which is kind of semi-gray and opaque or whatever, but uh, though I have occasionally done that and some people work with that, I paint on the clearest leader I can find. And uh, then sometimes I scratch and, and use black leader and fill in the scratches with color. But mostly clear leader. All the films you saw uh, today were clear leader paint. Then it takes 24 of these pictures to make a second. Now, I'm not trying to do animation. In fact, I kind of try to avoid it. Um, because there, that would, you should use cells or something larger than the animation. Uh, I'm trying to give something true to inner thought processes. These are scary. Uh, I found I was getting very sick and kind of crazy when I was doing it by myself. So I have the habit now to paint in a crowd of people. Uh, I'll like go to a park and sit at the park bench where there are people, children playing around me and people or the major place they put up with this, I go and paint in a restaurant in Boulder every day while I'm waiting for my lunch, you know, I paint. And, and uh, because I'm surrounded by people talking normal things like real estate, children, uh, so on. Um, I don't paint in my home because I put out a kind of zone that my children are very affected by. Even the cat thickens its tail if I come in too soon after working. Then I can edit that anywhere, and I, I take that material when it's painted and, and put it through step printing, usually, though not always. Some, some of my films are just as painted. But I go through a step printing process, and there I'm very much beholden to a former student who I now call a colleague, Mary Beth Reed, has uh, worked with me, and I help her. It takes two people to step print creatively, and we help each other. And, so I've been enabled to go on, even though the step printer at my lab shut down. I thought I was finished at that point with the whole mode of making, but along came Mary Beth and said, no, I need help, uh, you need help, let's work together. Uh, I'm very beholden to young people in many ways and to my students, and in a variety of ways. <laughs> we don't just have people in the arts, we have like two. The two of my former students, for instance, are the creators of South Park. I never know that ordinarily. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I think Stanley is is uh, an homage to me because he's the one that doesn't cuss so much, but he, he has a weak stomach and throws up when you get <laughs> They're teasing me, you know, uh, and I'm very proud of that. Also, the maker of the Suicide Kings, uh, the maker of the probably you don't I can't remember his name, character. Uh, was former student uh, Robert Redford's son and, and, and Chermayev, uh, who make documentaries together. A variety of people. Oliver Stone's editor. Uh, we have a lot of people. Is it uh, Joe? Oh, not Joe Hutchins. The one that uh, edited the JFK. Joe Hutchins. Yeah, Joe Hutchins. He graduated he's from uh, our high school. Well, so there. Oh, wow! See what a small world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just found out that one of my favorite former students, who is a filmmaker is uh, I called her last night because she's from Korea and I was so thrilled by the Korean film, which by the way they're going to show again tonight and I really recommend it to you. The, the uh, uh, tech film, uh, in Kwan uh, Tech. They're going to show it at, I think around 8 o'clock anyway in the uh, Opera House. Uh, please see it if you can. It was just a revelation. I was moved to call my old Korean student because you know in Korea, if you're once a teacher, you're always somebody's teacher, unless they don't like you. So we're we're friends for life. Tell her this. What do I find out? She's a friend of his. She's known him since she was a child. So she's just going to call him and tell him uh, 
how much I like this film. Sorry, I'm talking to you. I only want main thing. Let me say the main thing that's really important, which I wanted to put it last, so hopefully you don't forget it. If you do paint on film, it must adhere. And please do not use anything that has lead in it or coal tar dyes. Because I sit here today without a bladder because I painted for years with coal tar dyes and I got bladder cancer of the so specific, the coal tar dyes, that it's like asbestitis as a lung cancer. And uh, a lot of young people say, oh, well, I don't care if I die or whatever, but you do not want to lose your bladder. Die if you want. <laughs> don't, don't lose your bladder. <laughs> Excuse me, what do you use to paint I get, ironically, my best paints these days are porcelain, which uh, is... Oh, like your brush or whatever, a hair? Oh, no, I use dental tools, mostly, and engraving tools. Um, you dip the paint on it, and you know, you need a little tiny points, little tiny things that the dentist gets in between your teeth with, you know, all those little things. Do you go on with the paint you're using, though? Uh, I use porcelain. Which uh, is a Farsi has written both English and Farsi. It comes from Iran, and so it is Persian. Um, I use um, Deca, which is a cloth dye, and because they have to dye clothes and people not come down with cancer, they 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 kept clear of coal tars. But you find it very very hard. You'll have to search. There are many other things. Uh, you'll have to search to find and really read the small print or make the uh, person who's selling it to you um, find out. Sometimes you have to say, look, uh, if I find, if you sell me this and I find out there's coal tar or lead in it, I'll sue you. <laughs> then they get on the phone and find out what's in it. Coal tar is the word? Coal tar dye. And the sad thing about that is that that is the first carcinogen that humans discovered. The uh, chimney sweeps of the 19th century England got cancer of the scrotum. And they figured out it was due because they were climbing naked up and down in these uh, in coal tar, you know, cleaning these chimneys. And uh, But even though that's so, we have no law yet against coal tar dyes. And how serious that is, you go into a... Uh, See, I like when people paint color their hair different colors. But you go into a barber shop and you look at the bottles. Coal tar is high on the list of almost all hair dyes. So you're both killing your, you know, your barber and yourself. You know, and and, and like uh, so, I I'm like the terror of older barber shops. Say, oh God, here comes that old crank again. You know. <laughs> And I literally went into one of them. I said, you treat me this way. I said, you want to see what it's like to try to get along? I said, I'll take down my pants and show you what it's like to try to get along without a bladder. No, they don't want to see that. So I said, so just don't make fun of me. You do what you want. But I have to speak strongly because you are, you are setting people up for a horrible death or great difficulty. <coughs> I always thought when you were an ostomy patient that you screwed it in. I never saw think, what would you screw it into? Your hip bone? No, it has to be pasted on with grout, waterproof grout. And yet you have to do it so carefully you do not tear up your skin or you end up sitting three days in a bathtub waiting for your skin to heal. I'm laying this out kind of toughly because I want people to really be aware for their hair, for toys that they buy for younger children, most of which are made in China, as you well know, and most of which contain coal tar and lead, even though it's against the law. The U.S. doesn't stop it. They import. We fill our stores with toys that the Chinese have killed their own children with, and then they send it over for ours to suck on. This world is, here, you'll agree with me, right? It's a, it's a minefield, and you better believe it. I'm a little interested, you know, a lot of times we, so like the, the audience, bigger average audience, looks at a filmmaker and says, well, this person was 
you know, if you've been doing film all your lives or whatever, there's some sort of, you know, uh, vision like, but we think, but the other day I talked to you and found out that, you know, a lot of your background and, and, and how you got there, could you tell the kids a little bit about that? Because I, I think a lot of times the way people get places, it's not, it's not a direct route, you know, it, it's somehow rather, it's a collection of experience. Well, um, I never went to film school. I'm actually very happy I never went to film school because um, having looked at now a couple of thousand uh, film entries from film schools, I find remarkably that they all have the same thumbprint on them, meaning that they're all trying to do this story that can get them into Hollywood in some way. Now, to me, that's a bit, I'm sure there are exceptions to that. Yeah. And I'm sure that because you know, Stan teaches school and he has students that I'm sure pursuing it is what. Um, so I didn't go to school. If that's an encouragement or a discouragement, I don't know what to say. But I didn't have to, because of the kind of films I make, I would have had to unlearn what I learned in film school. Um, so I'm very happy not to have done that. I feel uh, that mistake is the biggest teacher. If one has the ability to be um, able to cope with making mistakes and being willing to risk to make them, they become your biggest teacher. So uh, film is not a, uh, in Stan's world, not in mine, uh, Stan makes his film completely by himself, maybe with the emotional support of other people. In my case, I'm like a blind person working through other people. Film is a collaborative art. Um, uh, the films I make, uh, unfortunately, cost a lot of money. Um, I need to find an angel that can give me that kind of money because my films uh, are not commercial and someone is having to make, willing to make a bad deal for love of the project. Um, so collaboration is very much the essence of filmmaking and if one if, if you want to make films other than the kind that Stan makes or a very personal film where you're doing it totally on your own you're going to have to work with other people and that's a very challenging and demanding event in my particular case uh, to respond to your question um, I uh, you know I worked with street gangs for many years and uh, during the time of working with them I saw this fantastic film called Los Olvidados which is uh, by the great Bunuel the great Spanish master Luis Bunuel in fact there's a tribute to him here at this festival it's a terrific film uh, the, 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 uh, the, the man who looked like he was in hospital clothes much older who played the lead in that film um, was uh, that film could have been shot in the barrios of Santa Fe, where I did a lot of my work, um, even though it was done in Mexico City. And uh, I had, I certainly wasn't entertained by Bunuel's film. Quite the contrary, I had a religious experience or a spiritual experience, and I felt that if I could be moved so deeply by something that touching, that it's something I wanted to check out because I had burnt out working with street gangs. I spent 90% of the time fighting police and um, I felt that that was counterproductive um, to try to keep defending uh, young people against authority is ridiculous because most people are fantastic you know if you tell a young person they're a shit they'll believe it if you tell them they're great they might believe it also and most of us actually have the capacity to do things beyond ourselves if we can forget about ourselves um, so those are the kind of places I began, I, my, my motivation comes out of, of working with despair, suffering, um, and a great deal of joy in being in the street as well. It's not all uh, sorry stuff. And it motivated me into choosing film because um, I wanted to, I, I learned years ago as a teacher that uh, people learn in terms of what they already know. And I found that people are are obsessively attracted to the image um, that uh, movies are the biggest thing in people's lives now for me it's kind of a waste of time because I find most movies to be not only uninteresting but they kind of deaden the sensibilities they uh, they don't offer anything it's a big special effects event and that's why coming to an event like this as Stan was saying is very special you get to see gems really special things 
but uh, in my case I felt well if I wanted to really commune with people if I wanted to try to offer something a point of view a sensibility that the film would be the way to do it because this is where people go so I wanted to make film uh, that could actually get into the real world into real theaters rather than into museums and into very special events like this and so it was a very strategic uh, thing I did so I make films with a very high-tech base of uh, equipment um, and I make films that criticize technology so I'm dealing in contradiction um, well, yes. uh, we are, but I mean, my, my films overtly are considered criticisms of the technological world and for which I'm considered a hypocrite because I use a very high tech base. But Where I believe... Can we see your film? Are they showing you, again today? Or are they going to repeat or, or write? No, you could buy, you could rent them in the video stores. I, oh, I, okay. Koyanis Katsi is a... Is um, one oh, film. you know, yeah. I loved that film. I saw it years ago in a big theater. That's what I mean, in a big theater. In a big theater. <laughs> and then, subsequently, I bought the tape and watched it on television. And it, and I, I told my students, because I showed some excerpts of it in class, and I said, you have to see this in a big theater. Oh, and sure. it, because it, it was awesome. It was just uh, the, the visuals were stunning. Well, I heard I'm, I'm sorry, by the way, I have seen Koyon Scotsi, and uh, I saw it in a theater, and it was a memorable. What I did not get to see is the second one, which came and went. So Polakotsi, yeah. it uh, was uh, it was uh, uh, funded by uh, Canon, which is Menachem Golem, Nurem Globus. These are people that bought MGM, and with mafia money, and <laughs> the whole enterprise collapsed like a house of cards. My film included. It, uh, in Italy, anything that these gentlemen had their name on was forbidden to be seen because of all the criminal restrictions on it. So that film kind of disappeared, but it's a Is it in video? It's in video. Uh, and then I did a film called Anima Mundi for the Worldwide, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, um, which is on video also. And I did a small film about children watching television called Evidence which is uh, mainly available in Europe. It's not available here in the States. Uh, the films I make, I, I've uh, really made them to be performed with live orchestras. Uh, the reason I do that is that uh, while it limits the number of people that can see them, I know that since it is a film, the real, the ubiquitous medium, unfortunately, is an electronic medium of television. And as you said, it reduces everything, but you have to accept that that's how your film is going to be seen. But if it's possible to see it at the complete other end with an orchestra, not in a movie theater, but in a cultural palace, as it were, uh, with uh, then it raises, as it were, the, sensu the, 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 the way that the senses can perceive the event. In other words, you can feel the soundtrack. And that soundtrack in my, in the kind of films I do, I don't use language, uh, that soundtrack is the narration. So as music indicates a direct communion to the soul rather than through words, which is through a more linear, linear um, arrangement, um, these films, and they're not for everybody for sure, but for those that, that, they, that can be open to them, they can touch you directly because I'm not trying to uh, uh, tell you something specific. It doesn't mean that I don't have something specific in mind, but I don't believe in telling people, I don't believe in giving people messages. I believe in presenting the context of a situation and let people discover their own truth in it. So that's the kind of film that, the kind of films that I've tried to do. Can you say, um, you borrowed the word from, from, from the Hopi word? Yes. The Hopi word. I, I used, um, uh, I'm not a Hopiite, I'm not a white guy that's out there trying to be an Indian, okay? And uh, in fact, I find it kind of disgusting. Uh, but I, you know, if you go to any university, there are departments of ethnology, etc. These are, excuse the term, white people using their subjective categories to analyze indigenous people. And it is subjective. 
what I wanted to do was turn the tables. I wanted to take the subjective categories of Native American people and apply that to white people, which have built this mad culture that we all can't get enough of. So I, I, was, uh, I met an old uh, Indian gentleman, uh, David Manange, who was from the village of Haute Villa, and um, everything that he said was like producing illumination in my head. He said, everything that you call normal, I call abnormal. Everything that you call sane, I call insane. And that was like music to my ears because I feel like that. I feel like the norms of sanity are really the insanity. And I wanted to make a film about that. So would I use an English word that has lost its charge? I didn't want to. I wanted to take an inscrutable word that comes from an illiterate language, a language that has an enormous amount of power to be able to offer people something new. So you know that statement, a picture's worth a thousand words? I took that and turned it on its head. I tried to take a thousand pictures and give it the power of that one word, Koyanis Katsi. And, uh, and so because I believe in naming something, you create something. And I believe our language is losing its human charge to describe the world in which we live. So I wanted to go to, a, to the wisdom of savages, of people who are not civilized, because from my point of view, civilized is violent. Savage is beautiful. So I wanted to go to, an, from, in a radically different place, to find a wisdom that's not available in, in academia, in universities. Uh, I wanted to go to a wisdom that was found in the earth, as it were, and that's why I choose, chose uh, Hopi words. Can I just say something after all that? I, what I wanted to be was a poet, and I'm far from that. Poet. Well, you. You <laughs> but I mean, you know, poet, poet really also is that special thing that you can do with words, and I'm a good talker. Thank God for that, because that's the only way I can make a living. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I could never make a living if I didn't have the gift of gab. But, but wanting to be a poet, I, I, this is, one has to recognize that our culture has produced the greatest changes of potential in the English language in maybe 150 years. You know, I mean, just fantastic uh, evolutions of poetry. And for a while, it was available people but now it's not again you know it and you have to kind of understand this it was quite normal and ordinary in fact the norm when when some news event happened if a poet wrote a poem about it it'd be on the front page of your newspaper along with the other news stories and it moved through our society and people were trained to read poetry grew up reading it having it read to them as they were little kids starting with mother goose and so on and the and then I like to quote apropos things you've been saying. Uh, one of the great poems, uh, poets of this period was uh, William Carlos Williams, and he was also a doctor. That's how he made his living. And he said, um, "The news, you cannot get it from the newspapers, but only from despised poems." And I see good men die miserably in their bed every day for the lack of it. Now this is the power of poetry. I mean, if something like that starts being in people's minds. It's rhythms or so that you can memorize it and hold it. So that's my inspiration in what I do, and I think I fancy with yourself too. There's been. See, let me give you another one. If you really love poetry and study it, and in fact literature at all, Gertrude Stein is the Giotto of literature in our time. True, she lived most of her life in Paris. But while she was alive, almost every prose writer was his or her feeling about language and about human beings and so on. And so I'm constantly sensing we had this great poetry, but it's been stifled. It has been deliberately destroyed by people who want to keep everybody stupid. Right. And they want to keep them insensitive. Why? Because they could get you to vote for two ridiculous people that they put up there uh, if they keep you stupid enough that you think that's okay. I mean, and they want you to be stupid, and they want the public schools to, 
to do it. And art is their greatest danger. You know why? Because it encourages people to be unique and individual and not you think for the feel for themselves. And can you can add yeah. something down yeah. to what you're saying. Uh, if, if, if what, what Stan is saying is that poetry can feed the soul, it's so important and it's been, it's dying, it's, it's, been, it's been lost. But poetry comes from the human language. In 1900, there were 30,000 languages and principal dialects on this planet. Today, you're approaching 4,000 languages and principal dialects. Do you know what that means? That means that, that, uh, that whole language groups are dying. That means that people who live on the land are being exterminated or absorbed into the greater mass culture. We're heading ourselves to a mono-global culture through all of this acquisition and success in technology that we have. And the price we're paying is the very loss of our, of our, of our language, of our way of life, to the point where, where the world is becoming more and more the same rather than held together through the mystery of difference. And meanwhile, they keep talking about diversity. Every every politician, Canada, U.S., everything, diversity, diversity, we're having great diversity. But what they mean is you can go and get dumb, fake tacos right next to <laughs> stupid, hardened, worse than Chef Boyardee spaghetti right next to, and so on, you know, just lies of diversity. And, uh, of course, it's not always like that. There are exceptions, but... Some places that really struggle to allow their various cultures to come out, and, and, uh, but basically that's the problem. What's happening? And again, wherever you find, I made a study of this at one point because a poet, Ezra Pound, had said, if three generations pass without a public uh, recognition of poetry, that is, that you know poetry like you know plumbers or how to, you know, how to drive your car or whatever. If three generations pass in a culture, it is an irretrievable decline. So I said, come on. And I took up my suit and made a four-year study of that, and I'm here to tell you, try it for yourself if you want. That's absolutely so. We're in the, we're approaching the third generation. Right? That's right. At this point, the cassette tape sound dropped out. But the students asked question about what popular films that the two of them didn't really like and wish would go away. And sort of a blunt question, but I think they both found a nice poetic way to talk about it. I hope you enjoyed this tape, and thanks for listening. Here's the end of the tape. I don't, you know, I don't know how to answer the question. I don't know. I don't know which. I mean, there's so many that come to mind. I don't. I think. I think you have to build off the discussion that we just had. You guys talk a lot of um, a certain genre of filmmakers that you are you're opposed to, more so than similar people. Right. It's not so much opposed to, but you know, the the kind of films that Stan does, that, for example, that they're they're going to they're going to last longer than Star Wars. Uh, but that doesn't mean many people see them right now compared to that. The kind of films that are in the public are commercial films, and they're made to make money. They do them on demographics. They test the audience. Uh, the businessmen are telling the directors what to do. It's not what, I mean, Stan couldn't operate in that world, and I certainly couldn't either, but I can't. But uh, that's not what's you know, the movie business is an industry. It's like making hot dogs or cars. It has a formula. If, if, if you take this year the film that has been a success, whatever it happens to be, let's call it, I don't know, Aaron Brackovich or whatever, or, or Gladiator, next year there'll be 10 imitations because that's what's going to get money. Well, that's a, you know, you can pursue a job if you want doing that but if you want a career or if you want to be a poet of image then you would have to go upstream in another direction can i just add to that that uh, uh, i i like the movies and i go to them i probably go to more movies than anyone i know and i mean some better than others but i i don't confuse that at all with your work or my 
which is something different. Mm. But, so I do have a take on the good side of the movies. For the most avaricious reasons, <laughs> that is that they want everybody's money, uh, the movies are a kind of litmus of what the society is interested in. Mm -hmm. They are better than the newspapers. Um, i.e. there were more movies made about the destruction of the family farm than ever appeared in the newspapers while it was happening. Uh, because um, so many people knew so many farmers that were being destroyed and they want their dollars and then they want the liberal dollars and then they want etc. So they'll, they can, it's a good newspaper in a way where you get into the theater and you kind of sit there with everyone and you feel some resentments like say the hiding one thing about oliver north's uh, film jfk stone stone sorry the water he moved out of town <laughs> 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 i don't like it here any but anyway i mean oliver stone's uh, film brought to a new generation and allowed airing to the consciousness of an old, the paranoia that sits there, totally ignored by the press. They had a little resorgimento where they went through all the facts again and lied to everybody about them again, and then the press is no longer interested. But in the movies, you can find real questions being asked about the murder of this president. So. That to me is the good side. I don't want to just only. Uh, I can also say what how hypnotic and how uh, horrible, how controlled it all is, and how there's mind control going on. But very often, mind control doesn't really work. Like Galactica didn't work, did it? I didn't see it. Well, I didn't see it either. But I mean, I don't know anybody who did see it. But you had this big star, and you had science fiction, and everybody loved that. that, and you had all the... <coughs> How was that cult? Yeah, what did you get? El Ron Hubbard's group put Oh, out. right, right, right. Oh, yeah, right, right, right down the tubes. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah, that was the first. I mean, that was good. Yeah, it was just... good, the movie's not even worth mentioning. What's good? Okay. We're going to need to wrap this up. They need to use this area for bringing a film. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.